Hi. Um, next day, Shelby jumping in because I forgot a trigger warning for um, the second to the last episode called First Haircut. Um, if you get to First Haircut, second to the last story, trigger warning, Holocaust imagery and Holocaust. Thank you. Welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott, and I'm here to read you quite a few bedtime stories. Before we get started, I wanted to mention that I play a character on the latest episode of the 13 podcast. I was so happy to be asked back, especially for such a creepy story. Go check out the 13 podcast, and the episode is called The House in South Hill, and that's 13 all spelled out, not the numbers. Spell out 13. Um, Listen to the rest of the episodes, too. They do this really cool world building, and while each episode can be listened to as a standalone, they all add a little bit, not all of them, I don't think, don't quote me on that, they're going to tell me I'm wrong, but a lot of them add little callbacks to some of the older episodes, and it adds such a cool and terrifying layer to the whole 13 universe. (laughs) Okay, into this week's episode. It's been quite a while since I've done a brevity episode. I don't even remember the when exactly the last one was. Um, and I just so happened to receive several submissions from two authors that were just perfect for a fifth brevity installment. First up are three stories from Rachel Weaver. And if you like what you hear, Rachel has a ton of these scary two to four minute reads on Wattpad. Perfect if you just want to sit and just kind of browse through and read a bunch of scary stories. Um, So I will link the Wattpad in the show notes. Please go check it out. But first up is The Morgue. I hate working in a hospital. The sad thing is, I only do it because I get paid more there than flipping burgers. But money is the only incentive. Everything else sucks. I could go on and on about what I despise working in that place. There's the smell, for one. I swear there's a certain smell to hospitals. I can't explain. It's a smell that's like the combination of bleach and dirt. Or at least that's what it is on my floor. Everywhere else I go, it's manageable. But on my floor, I can't seem to get away from it. What's even stranger is that I'm the only one that can smell it. I'll complain to my other co-workers, but they'll just shrug and be like, well, maybe you have a better nose than I do, or maybe I have a cold or something. I know I'm not crazy, but I swear everyone else thinks so. I know I'm just a janitor. I'm around bleach all the time, but this is different. The smell is just different. One day, I picked up a shift for a buddy of mine who was begging for a day off. I decided, what the hell, I could always use more money, and took the shift. The only negative was it was the lowest level of the hospital, the morgue. It was like my typical shift, 8.30 to 5, but in new territory. I've heard mixed reviews from others about cleaning the morgue area. Most things I just narrowed down to superstition and the uncomfortable feeling of being close to non-living humans. I didn't care, though. Again, I was in it for the money, and I didn't have to worry about patients or nurses complaining over wet floors or loud equipment. It was fine for a while, just following my usual routine. Until that smell returned. Here, though, it was stronger, more potent, 
It was right in front of a door. A door to one of the rooms where they examined bodies. Like most of the rooms down here. Out of curiosity, I jiggled the door handle. Unlocked. Did I want to risk getting fired? After debating for a full minute, I went in. There weren't any cameras down here that I could see, and if anyone asked, I'll say I got lost. That smell just had to mean something. I went in, my heart pounding with adrenaline as the smell was stronger than ever. The room was mostly empty except for a long gray table with an identical table a couple inches to the left. The table on the left had what I presumed to be a body covered by a stark white sheet. As soon as I laid eyes on it, the smell seemed to disappear altogether. I didn't know what compelled me to do so, but I approached the body. My hand shook with every step towards it. Once I stood over the body, ignoring every message from my brain telling me to turn back and go. I clutched my shaking hand on the sheet and instinctively yanked it. It flopped to the floor like the cold snow of November. I froze like it too. Lying before me was me. My body How could this be? Hey, what are you doing in here? Startled, I looked back to see a worker of the morgue looking not so pleased at me. I looked back at the body before me, but it was no longer me. It was just the body of some older woman. Was I really losing my mind? That same day, I put in my two-week notice. I couldn't very well put saw my own corpse as a reason to leave, so I just said it wasn't for me. The day after my last day at the hospital, I was scrolling through my news app on my phone when I stumbled across an article that knocked the breath out of me. It read, Janitor shot dead on sixth floor of Sanctuary Hospital, along with many injured. That was my old floor at the hospital, and I would have been working there today if I hadn't quit. I would have died today, and I would have been in that morgue below. I don't mind flipping burgers again. Sloppy. I've never been a huge fan of small towns. I'm usually more prone to big cities where things happen, whether it's good or bad, at least shit happened. I remember being enthralled as a kid, looking out of my mother's apartment window at flashing lights, chasing down a speeding car or two estranged lovers yelling at each other until one of them suddenly fell silent. While some kids fell asleep to the sound of some generic lullaby or radio static. I fell asleep to gunshots and screams. This will sound morbid, if not a little crazy, but I grew to love the sounds of the city. But now, I fall asleep to nothing. Some find the sound of silence comforting, But I find it unnatural. I even went out of my way to live in the lower end part of town. But still, nothing. My parents offered to come visit. They always knew how to make me feel better, but I refused. I would handle this myself. At 24, fresh out of college and persistent to live on my own, well, besides a cat or two, I moved to the small town in desperation to escape an unfortunate circumstance. My parents always tried to serve as the voice of reason, telling me how to be safe and what precautions to take, but 
I didn't listen. And because of that, I had to relocate. My parents did too. It was that bad. But who could blame me? I liked being reckless, much like my surroundings. Hell, it's in my genes. It was on my genes. Shit, they're still back there. I was so quick to change my clothes like my parents had told me after doing the deed that I totally left them sprawled out in a corner. Unless they went back and... Just as the thought crossed my mind, the notification of a message pinged from my phone. The bright light of the screen illuminated my pitch black room. Once comfortable in my otherwise second-hand bed, I reached over to grab my phone. The name Mom appears by the notification. Great. I opened the phone and read the message. Hey, sweetheart. Hope you're settling in okay. I know change can be hard. I hope you don't mind, but your father and I snuck back over to the scene to make sure everything was on the up and up. Gotta say, honey, and I know you'll hate to hear it, but it was pretty sloppy. It was smart of you to bring the body back, but there was still quite a bit of blood and you left your jeans. I only say this because we love you, but leave the jobs to us. These people deserve what they get, but there still needs to be some diligence in the matter. Your dad says hi. Delete this message and number after you're done. Hell, trash the whole phone. Stay safe. Love ya, Mom. I sighed heavily. Well, that was embarrassing. Old Flame He had not seen her since they had left high school. Yet here she was now, standing on the other side of the railroad tracks that acted as borders around Jonathan's town. Jonathan stared in awe and confusion at the beautiful woman also known as Jeanette Peters. She was, as his classmates called her, a knockout. She had a perfectly proportioned face which came complete with a small nose, perfectly sized breasts, plump lips, high cheekbones, and large icy blue eyes so sharp it can slice a man in two. A man like Jonathan Druthers. And they had. Looking at Jeanette didn't fill Jonathan's stomach with fluttering monarchs and dandelion bushes, but rather with pins and needles. Jeanette was part of the popular crowd back in the days when Jonathan had to submit to an obnoxiously loud bell and carry absurd amounts of reading material wherever he went. But Jeanette only added to Jonathan's pain in high school. She would join in with the others when they mocked and bullied Jonathan. When Jonathan tried to confess his love to Jeanette, recounting how close they were when they were children living on the same block. She shot him with those penetrating eyes and just walked away with a jock wrapping his buff arm around her skinny waist. One event stuck out in his mind the most, like a sore thumb throbbing from a hammer being dropped upon it. It was the day when he almost died because of Jeanette. He tried so hard to suppress the memory, to let it pass as he often did with many of his past teenage antics. But he couldn't. He just couldn't. Staring into Jeanette's icy gaze, the memory flashed through his mind. He was only 16, desperate for friends, and had an ass wider than the Grand Canyon. John winced. Just thinking about his former size was enough to make him sick with dread. It was a crisp fall day, and John was bombarded by a couple of Jeanette's henchmen, also known as a couple of jocks, that asked him where he was going and 
They would keep him company along the way. There were a lot of things wrong with Jonathan at that time. But being dumb was not one of them. He knew all too well that this would either end with a bloody nose or some kind of bruise. He was some kind of walking, punching bag to these guys, and he just accepted that. He accepted that he was what everyone said he was. Nothing. Everything else was just a blur to Jonathan, but what his mind couldn't recall, his senses could. He tasted the salty, iron sensation of blood in his mouth. He felt the scars on his thighs and stomach burn intensely. Even after 20 years, the scars still stung and throbbed from time to time. Whoever said that scars healed over time was so full of it. The worst thing to come over him, though, was the ringing in his ears. His tinnitus was acting up, although there wasn't a loud sound anywhere near him. But now, locking his eyes with Jeanette, he felt everything. It was her. It was all her fault. What? He shouted, a little hoarse and wary. What do you want? Jeanette didn't move, her eyes still staring. Then, she grinned, which unsettled Jonathan. Her grin was enough to make even the most ferocious creature turn tail and run. He shook off his trance once more and moved closer to her, parking himself on the other side of the train tracks. I don't understand, he muttered, starting to shake. You're not supposed to be here. For the first time since he first spotted her, he noticed that Jeanette's feet were hovering over the ground. I killed you, he said at last. I killed you so many years ago. Jeanette still said nothing. After a few moments of silence, a laugh started to rise from the depths of her stomach to finally out of her mouth, making Jonathan fall back on the tracks. He let out a yell of pain, screaming out for help that would be miles away from where he laid. His ears ring louder than ever before, making it impossible to hear anything else but the high-pitched rings. He tried to get up, but he couldn't move a muscle. He was paralyzed to the tracks, as if he was tied to them. He felt constricted to them more, as Jeanette floated to him. Jonathan started to cry. Ugly cry hollering and pleading for Jeanette's forgiveness until she was looking down at him, her gaze figuratively slamming his jaws shut. Her smile had grown wider, unnaturally wider, so wide that it'd make the Cheshire cat swivel up and hide out of sheer terror. All Jonathan could hear was the ringing coming from his own ears. But he felt something. He felt the train tracks shiver and vibrate, making his scars burn and his heart race. He knew. He knew a train was coming. Jeanette knew too. As she turned her head, to glance at the oncoming monstrosity, making the tracks batter Jonathan's back more. She turned her head back to Jonathan sharply. At the same time, Jonathan's ears stopped ringing, 
Now all he heard was the train and his heavy breathing. He knew he didn't have much time, so quickly he spit out all he could think to say. I'm sorry, he said, whimpering. Jeanette's expression was blank until she finally said, I'm not. Then she vanished, leaving Jonathan as the train rushed in. next three stories are from Craig Banks. Craig isn't just a writer, he's a fantastic charcoal artist, and he even dabbles in mixing cremated remains into memorial portraits. I think that's lovely, and if you'd like to see more of Craig's art, or more, you're listening so you're not seeing it right now, if you'd like to see his art, I will link his website in the show notes. But for now, here are his three Tales. The Culling. The world as we knew it ended 15 years ago. The wars of the 20th century were atrocious, and although they were a tremendous loss of life and altered the course of human history, Nothing could compare to the total annihilation of the culling. Vampires are real. Yes, I scoffed at that notion a decade and a half ago too. Not only are vampires real, they are nothing like what we have seen in movies or read in books. None of that black suit wearing, suave, romantic bullshit that movies would have you believe. And sparkling in the sunlight? What was that bitch thinking? Vampires are formidable. There was no aversion to sunlight or UV rays. Crucifixes and silver were useless trinkets. The bloodlust was real and terrifying, and they owned a ruthless, naked savagery and tenacious cunning mixed with brutal intelligence. Cerebral, efficient killing machines with a hive mentality seeking out anything with a pulse. Humans being their first and foremost target. Those who were bitten turned immediately. Although turned vampires were far less animalistic, but still shared the same mentality. The only way to weaken a vampire was to starve it. The only way to kill a vampire was through decapitation or the piercing of the heart. Later in the war, they found out that nuclear disintegration worked well too. No one knew where they came from. They swarmed the Earth's major cities all at once, and all of a sudden. The attack was so abrupt that there were barely televised news reports, and radio reports ceased after the first few days. It was full-scale war. Humanity united in a fantastic and powerful display of strength and fought for survival. The vampire hordes and human forces had reached a stalemate until the first nuclear warhead dropped. It tipped the scales of the war now known as the culling. At the cost of billions of human and vampire lives, the war was won, the earth was won, and the rebuilding process had begun. My name is Todd Phillips, but my friends call me Sketch. I'm 18 years old and just an average Joe with a knack for sketching. My friends and I were joined at the hip. We had all lost our parents during the war, and we were raised in the same foster home. There's something about a shared trauma that bonds tortured souls. It was business as usual in the small town I called home. The town had mostly been rebuilt, and the talk of the culling was frowned upon and avoided. My friends and I, though, discussed it often and at length. On Fridays after school, we all hung out at the local mall, shooting the shit and 
keeping each other out of mischief. There were five of us. Raymond, Harry, Boner, Ham, and myself. On one particularly gloomy Friday, we congregated at our local spot. Harry was laughing at a joke from the group. Harry and I are best friends. We knew each other before the calling, and we'll probably know each other forever. I guess you could call it a bromance. Boner was the clown of the group, funny as hell and tactless, and the source of Harry's laughter. Good old Ham was very introverted with a low self-esteem, but what he lacked in confidence, he made up for in loyalty and intelligence. Raymond was our leader. From our foster days to now, he always took charge and kept us all safe and protected. At six foot four inches, we literally and figuratively looked up to him. Raymond was deep in conversation with Ham. It looked as if they were discussing something important, but my mind was elsewhere. Not so loud, Raymond said to Ham, sternly. Dejected, Ham muttered an apology and sunk back inside his shell. Okay, listen up, guys. Raymond spoke with authority. The way he commanded the group was inspiring. We all turned around and faced him. In a hushed tone, Raymond continued. Ham has found one of them. He told me it's weak, probably starving. He has it chained in that abandoned shed across town. We all knew exactly what he was talking about. One of them. Most of them were wiped out in the culling, but occasionally we got reports of a sighting or attempted uprising. Can we go see it? I think we have to, Raymond said, staring at us intently. We need to put it out of its misery. We were all taken aback by Raymond's words. None of us liked the creatures, but what he was suggesting was basically murder. Think of it as pest control, Raymond said, reading our minds. We had decided to do it that night, just after sunset, and meet up at the shed. We all went our separate ways to gather any equipment we might need. I went home and picked out the coolest dark clothes I had, and packed my tattered shoulder bag with the required necessities. Are we really doing this? I wondered out loud. Nervous and excited, I got dressed, grabbed my bag, and headed out. I agreed to meet Harry at the town center, on the way to the shed. Sketch, what's up, fool? Harry greeted me as I rounded the corner. He was sitting at the foot of a fountain, Let's get this shit over with. We made our way to the shed across town with sparse conversation. We walked and walked, jumped a few fences, and eventually the only sign of civilization was the highway far in the distance. I noticed Harry carrying with him a sharpened piece of discarded table leg. He glanced at me. His smile looked gravely sinister. We arrived at the rundown old shed, and I immediately noticed the weathered door standing ajar. They're here already, I exclaimed, and started running towards the shed, Harry never more than two steps behind me. We reached the shed, and I shouted into the open doorway breathlessly. Ray? My heart was palpitating. Ham? Are you guys in here? A hand reached from the dark void and grabbed the front of my jacket. Boner said, emerging from the darkness. Don't interrupt the men. Hard at work. We were supposed to meet here and do this together, Harry said coldly. Boner smiled and offered a muffled apology. You guys have to see this. The excitement in his voice was disturbing. As we stepped into the shed and as our eyes adjusted to the darkness, we saw it. Chained to the far wall and flanked by Ham and Ray was a broken lump of flesh and bones, matted hair covering his misshapen scalp, naked and visceral, emaciated and filthy. The creature lay in a slowly spreading puddle of dark 
liquid. Is it dead? I asked. Not yet, Sketchy. Ray replied with a wink. We saved the death blows for you guys. The creature started moaning, and its cries were distinctly female. My stomach turned at this revelation, and for the first time, I felt like backing out. Harry, I said, trying to keep my composure. You go first, man. Harry needed no persuading. He stepped past me, his crude wooden stake at the ready, and lunged at the creature. At that moment, Ray stepped between him and his intended victim. Harry bounced off the brick wall that was Ray's torso, and his stake went scuttling across the cement floor, settling next to the creature. Are you fucking kidding me, Harry? An irate Ray bellowed. Savor this shit! Think about the millions that they killed. This is not torture. It's justice. At that moment, the creature stirred and with unexpected swiftness seized the wooden stake. Rising on its knees, the creature threw it towards us with all its might. We easily dodged the giant splinter as it hit the wall and ricocheted back to the sender. The rebounding wooden stake struck the creature on the left temple and knocked it out cold. We stared in absolute silence. Boner burst into hysterical laughter, and we all eventually followed suit. After a minute of braying and snorting, the laughter trickled off and Boner, with tears in his eyes, spoke first. Guys! He said, wiping away a tear. Doesn't this remind you of the time <laughs> that, they, <laughs> that they decided to use nuclear bombs on us? <laughs> the idiots programmed their missiles wrong and blew themselves to shit! We all fell about laughing. <laughs> Even me. Even though I felt a twinge of compassion for this creature, it was human. And humans have no more place on this earth. While the others continued their laughter, I picked up the wooden stick and began to sketch. First haircut. Evelyn's eyes danced with excitement. At five years of age, excitement meant fidgeting, whining, and asking the same question over and over again. She was about to have her first haircut, and she wasn't even upset at having to lose her long brown locks. Am I next, Mommy? Evelyn pleaded while squeezing her mother's hand and pulling down her arm. Exasperated, Evelyn's mother hushed her sternly. She looked so tired. The winter was particularly long and hard that year. They were both hungry, and there was no time for them to have breakfast. Their train was leaving early, and it was a long trip to the barber shop. The barber shop was a large, old, two-story building that hadn't aged well. The walls were cracked, crumbling in places, and covered in a faded red hue that desperately needed another coat of paint. Outside the barber shop was very crowded. People shoving and shouting. Evelyn had begun to feel anxious, and if it weren't for the smart, well-dressed policeman and his dog patrolling the area, she would have been overwhelmed to the point of tears. Evelyn looked ahead, and there were only a handful of families ahead of them. All women and children. The children were much older than Evelyn, But she was tall for her age, so she didn't feel much out of place. Evelyn supposed their fathers were busy at work or home. She knew that such errands were the women's jobs anyway. Evelyn missed her father. He died the year before in an accident at work. Someone had set the factory on fire. And every night, she cried for him. Evelyn was studying the ground. 
following the path of a determined ant proudly lugging a crumb of bread to his hungry family. Suddenly, she heard a blood-curdling scream behind them. Trying to look through the sea of people was futile, and she asked her noticeably bewildered mother what had happened. Ah, uh, Lady fainted. Evelyn's mom stammered nervously. It's quite all right. Look, we're next. It was true. They were at the entrance to the barbershop, and the door swung open. Hurry inside, baby, Mother said, gently ushering the shivering Evelyn inside, holding her hand tight. Evelyn's tummy was rumbling, but it sank when she stepped into the barbershop. As her eyes adjusted to the dimly lit room, she took in her surroundings, and a fresh wave of anxiety swept over her. The formerly green-tiled floor was covered in discarded dead hair, mostly black and brown and splashes of gray. A heavy-set older man with a dirty white apron and hairy arms beckoned her to come closer. He patted the seat of the barber chair lightly as a rotten tooth grin spread across his lined face. Near the back exit, covered by a long, stained curtain, were two policemen, laughing. One of them looked back at the barber and motioned to the floor and the river of fallen hair and proudly remarked, You're up to your neck in it, Hans. Their laughter drifted off as they led a woman by the arms, through the curtain, to a dark area beyond. The smell in the air was hot and metallic. A semi-bald woman shuffled past, sobbing, her scalp bleeding. As Evelyn tried to take a step back, her mother held her hand tighter as she bent down to whisper in her daughter's ear. Be strong, my baby. It has to be done. Mommy will go next, and after that... We will have a shower, and then they'll give us some food. This next one is the last story of the evening, and I would like to give it a heavy trigger warning for animal abuse. So, if that is something that you would not like to have in your life this week, totally understandable, and I will see you next week, or skip ahead. Uh, to the very end of the show, which will be at 46 minutes. That time. I think future Shelby just told you. I don't know. She knows. Anyway, this one does not have a title, but again, trigger warning, animal abuse. I remember my first taste of fear. It was soon after my fourth birthday. We had just dropped off my brother and sister at school, and we were on our way home. I saw an upturned ice cream cone melting on the tarred road, and I lunged for it. My mother pulled me back harshly. The hot wind of a four-ton truck blasted my face and ruffled my hair as it coursed past us. We both stood in the middle of the road, frozen with shock, as cars from both sides stopped and hooted, and their occupants gazed coldly at us. I was afraid then. I thought I had known the true, sweet, sickening taste of fear. I was wrong. I've been held captive in this room for over a week now, as far as I can tell. I am so scared. Through the crack under the door, I can tell it's day or night, but... All I'm aware of is my constant pounding heartbeat and the pain that my heavy iron shackles have inflicted on my raw and festering ankle. The gnawing hunger and thirst are ever-present and maddening. The last time I was given water, a plastic bottle was thrown across the room and its murky contents pooled into a rancid puddle that was thankfully within reach. I had no choice but to drink it. My captors have kept me in the dark, 
During the day, the only light source is the small crack in the far corner where the wall meets the crudely built corrugated iron ceiling. The nights are cold and blinding. I have no means to keep warm and to conserve heat. I spend most of the time curled up in a ball in a ditch I had to dig myself. The floor is soft, muddy, and pliable. But because of my chains, my range is severely limited. I've thought about tunneling under the wall. I've screamed for help. I've tried loosening my indestructible chains and even contemplated chewing through my limb. I've thought about everything I could possibly do to escape this hell. I am dirty. I am covered in mud, and my hair is caked in clumps. My shackles have created vicious friction sores, and I can now smell my rotten flesh. My nails are grimy and broken from the digging. The dusty room has made it hard to breathe, and I would give anything for a lung full of fresh, precious air. I haven't been told why I'm here, and I am completely baffled. I'm a lowly security guard. My family is far from wealthy. I mostly keep to myself and don't have any enemies that I know of. The afternoon I was taken was a Sunday. My family had gone out for the day and I was about to take a nap when I heard a noise outside. I went to investigate and was confronted by five guys. The smell of cigarettes and alcohol hung thick in the air. Before I had a chance to react, I was seized and bundled into an awaiting van. The last thing I remember before waking up in this dingy dungeon was me struggling and a sudden sharp pain in my neck which I now realize was a syringe filled with some sort of strong sedative. The lack of information and uncertainty are the worst. They don't talk to me and ignore my cries and pleas. I have not been roughed about much since my arrival, but one day, a skinny guy in an Adidas tracksuit and worn-out Nikes kicked me square in the jaw and dislodged a tooth as he checked my restraints. I have never hated anyone more in my life. The constant fear keeps me subdued. All I hear are muffled voices and barking. My energy levels have depleted, and I'm struggling to stay awake. I worry about my family. I wonder if they're safe and know where I am. I slowly open my tired eyes and absorb the hopelessness of my surroundings and my situation. Why am I here? Suddenly, the door bursts open and the room is bathed in piercing sunlight. I wince at the brightness and see a figure standing in the doorway, his silhouette large and imposing. There you are. The hulking figure speaks in a quiet, mocking tone. It's time. No trouble, you hear. In his left hand is a length of rope, snaking its way around his arm tightly and looped towards the dusty floor. A noose. His right hand holds a sinister-looking stick. His eyes bloodshot stare into mine and I can no longer hold my bladder. Warmth pools beneath me as my restraints are removed and the noose is placed over my head. I am yanked across the room and thrown outside. The cool, clean air is soothing and I breathe deeply. As my eyes adjust to the bright light, I'm rushed along a dusty rural road lined by rusty chain-linked fencing. Crudely built cages holding snarling, vicious pit bulls flank me on both sides. In the distance, 
I can make out a large crowd. The constant rabid barking fades away as I look up at the clear blue sky. A calm overcomes my senses, and my mind drifts to happier times. A time when there was no thirst, hunger, or pain. A time when I feel a sharp pain across my back bringing me back to reality. I am struck again. I wince and hurry forwards towards the gathering. As I approach the group, a voice behind me causes them all to turn their heads. A swarm of evil faces look down on me in disgust. Too scrawny and weak to fight. Hulking figure states matter-of-factly. Best to use this piece of shit as bait. Skinny Adidas emerges from the wall of humanity. Stumbling forward, he grabs me by my collar. (laughs) Muffins. What a stupid name for a dog. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much to my writers, to my authors, um, Craig and Rachel. Thank you so much for your contribution to the show and bringing back a brevity episode. I feel like a few people have asked me about them. Um, yeah, so this is also to show you that when I, a lot of people ask me what length I'm looking for in a story, I'm just looking for good stories. If it's super long, then if I really like it, I will break it up into a couple episodes maybe, or have an extra long episode. If it's super short, um, I can always kind of shove it in a place like this. It does help, I guess, if this, these, both of these caught my eye, to be honest, because they both had like several very short stories. So I could pick, you know, three of each, put them together into one episode. So, um, yeah. Uh, so if you have ideas, if you happen to have a few super shorties sitting around, um, feel free to send them over and I'll see what I can do. Um, yeah, brevity episodes are kind of fun to edit since there are so many little ones, you know? Um, what can I say? Oh, follow the show. Thank you for listening and follow the show on, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, all of those at scary to sleep. Um, again, new mods over at Facebook, um, looking maybe to do some new mods elsewhere and maybe dip my toe back into uh, discord a little bit, but I'm no promises. Um, stretched pretty thin right now with some other projects that I can't talk about on the show yet yet Um, what oh oh my god I posted this so there is a scary to eat group where we post food and talk about food it's great and every single time I have posted in that group I've accidentally posted in the main scary to sleep group and then I have to delete it and put it back in the scary to eat group Um, this time I did that and I didn't delete it because I actually, I just didn't catch it (laughs) to be honest. Um, and so, uh, that's what I baked this week though. If you saw that in the scary to sleep group and you're like, is she, uh, gone off a rocker even more? What is she doing? She's posting cookies in the scary group. We all post scary stuff here. She's breaking her, uh, there's no rule, but you know, um, they were these peanut butter chocolate cookies. Oh my God. Oh my God. They're so good. Um, they're a dupe recipe for the crumble cookies. Um, the muddy buddy ones, but, um, I don't know if you've had a crumble cookie before. I personally haven't They're o- They opened one near me and finally, and I, uh, went to order some so I could make sure I got a muddy buddy cookie so I could just go pick them up and have like, make sure I didn't like show up and all they have left are the ones that I didn't really care for. And they were sold out. And I was like, I just, I need this. I need this in me. I need it. I need it. I need it inside me. Um, so I found a dupe recipe online. And I can't tell you if it tastes like the crumble one because I haven't had it. But I can tell you that it tastes very, very good. So that's over on the Facebook page. Or if you want it, I can, I can text or text it to you. Oh, God. Imagine if I put out my phone number. Woof, pandemonium. Um, I can email it to you or message it to you if you hit me up on one of the social media websites. Uh, yeah. Um, what else? 
yeah, there's stuff coming up, but I can't talk about it, like I said. So, um, it's been another weird week. My, my grandma was in the hospital. Everybody send good vibes to Shelby's grandma if you can. If you are out of good vibes, then I send you good vibes because you need them. Um, so yeah, it's just been, it's been one of those years, you know? One of those years. Just a lot of weird like life-altering things happening all in the span of um, the first six months of the year. Um, so that's pretty crazy, but you know, getting through it. Grandma, I'm, she's fine, by the way. She was in the hospital all week, but she is okay. Um, she's healing from, you know, stuff that is none of your business, but thanks for asking. <laughs> um, so what else? What, what else? Um, what else? It, last time I had a few people tell me I didn't ramble for long enough. I'm sorry. I think what I'm going to do is start maybe doing some rambles on Patreon that are just rambles. Um, I know a few artists that I follow for YouTube or um, podcasts who I follow on uh, Patreon. They'll do those. They'll do some like more casual. And I used to do some more casual stuff. So maybe I'll go back to doing that. Um, so yeah, I, am, I apologize if stuff that I'm talking about coming out is not coming about, uh, out as quickly as uh, we'd all want as I'd want as you'd want. Um, like I said, I'm stretched a little thin right now. I took on some projects and I'm on my own again, you know, um, it's, and I'm, there's uh, stuff I can't talk about. I, I don't know why I keep bringing it up, but I can't talk about it. That was a loud car that just drove by. Um, there's also screaming children outside. Um, it's late, but I think they're on spring break. I don't know. I don't have children. I don't go to school, so I never know when spring break is anymore. I think that's all. I think I'm going to let you go so I can go figure out what I'm going to have for dinner and finish listening to the Steven Seagal series on the Dollop podcast, which is what I've been listening to. Speaking of, Rosemary, who you knew and loved from the Facebook group, but she has left Facebook. Great, great administrator. She's a dear friend of mine. She is on TikTok go find her under Rosemary Grows. Her TikTok is like blowing up. And if you love growing stuff and uh, funny, pretty ladies, then um, go follow Rosemary on TikTok. Rosemary Grows is her TikTok uh, handle. So yeah, go follow her there. Um, all right. Thank you so much again for listening. Seriously, um, life has gotten nutso lately in so many... There uh, bad ways but a lot of good ways too and it's all because of you and I thank you so much um so yeah can't wait to tell you all these things that I'm brewing up behind the scenes uh yeah go get some sleep and sweet dreams